You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. If you've got a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Psalm 96, please? Don't worry about the offering. We'll get to that in just a second. We'll take that up in just a moment. Uh, We've just wrapped up a series at our church uh, about our name, uh, about hope, and looking at the biblical definition of hope. And for that matter, our month is about to end, and it's been, as we've seen, a special, specific emphasis upon missions. And so we thought, hey, why not try and take and tie in the word hope and build in a specific mission message here tonight. So that's what we're gonna try and do, missions and evangelism, the sharing of Christ as part of my relationship in Jesus Christ. So here tonight, here is where we are going tonight in Psalm 96, we're gonna understand this. The more that I worship, the more I will declare Christ to a lost and to a dying world. Let me put it simply for you. Worship fuels missions. My heart for missions will be moved when my heart is moved in worship. Is that the case right now, though, for you? Psalm 119, 136, the psalmist writes, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Is that you? Does that sound like you? Tell me, are you burdened for the lost? Are you shedding tears for the lost? How many of us are begging God right now to save? How many of us are saying, God, my my son, God, my daughter, my wife, my husband, my family member, my coworker, God, please. Some of us may be right. How many of us are saying, God, would you, would you please save my neighbor? Would you please save my classmate? Would you please save my coworker, the guy who spots me at the gym? Would you please save God? Maybe a little less. How many of us are praying, God, would you, would you please save my mayor? Would you please save the premier? God, would you please save the prime minister? How many of us are doing that? How excited are you to tell people about Jesus? Look look at your life. Remember that moment when you came to know Jesus Christ? You were so excited to share. You had to tell people, you won't believe what I've just found out. You won't believe it. What if I, can, I, I can't even describe how different I am. You've got to see me. I've changed. But then time passes, doesn't it? And the excitement wanes. And then the struggles with my sin kick in. And the excitement wanes. And then the cares of the world come and my excitement wanes, and then the pursuits of things that really don't matter and really won't last come, and my excitement wanes. And then the concerns about others, the concerns about my health, the concerns about the culture, the concerns about the environment, the concerns of this life, and then the excitement wanes. You know what this looks like for a lot of us? If I could pull this diagram, it looks like this. When we first come to Christ, we're super excited. 
And Frank, for a lot of us, the excitement begins to go down as the years go by. Until, of course, the very end, when we know it's the very end. And we're trying to tell people as much as possible. I've seen this. What's wrong with me? Why is this a reality in my life? Why is that true of me? What is this, this truth that we hold anyways? We hold the truth that says that Jesus Christ exclusively is the way for those who can come to know him and find eternal life. Jesus Christ is exclusively the only way to find hope and life and joy and forgiveness of sins. He's the only way. But I don't tell them. What's wrong with me? Where is the urgency in my life? I went on a vacation one time, I was swimming in the ocean, my brother-in-law on the shoreline is waving his arms. You guessed it. There's a fin nearby. How many of us wouldn't do that for someone? They're in such danger, I need to tell them. We have a truth that can lead people away from hell and destruction into life with Jesus Christ. So where is the urgency gone? I'll tell you where it's gone. It's gone into my lawn. It's gone into my car repairs. It's gone into my work and my family and my health, my stuff, my entertainment, my crisis, my weddings, my graduations, my things, my times, my dentist appointment, my grocery shopping, my season finales, the playoffs, my social media. They're going into the cares of the world, aren't they? That's where the urgency goes. It's not all bad, but distracting, disorienting, diverting, misleading. Could it be, church, that the world and its concerns have dulled us to the urgency of sharing Christ. Could it be that the world and its concerns have made us forget that without Christ, people will actually perish? Could it be that the world and its concerns have convinced us that nothing is more important than living life right now, this life that we live? Could it be that the world and its concerns have disoriented us to thinking that this life is all there is? So how do we stir up a change in our lives? How do we stir up a greater desire for declaring the glory of God to a lost world? Listen, we have worshiped our way out of urgency. And the way back is worship in the right direction. Psalm 96 has some answers for us today. The point, as I said, of today's message is that worship, right worship of God, fuels mission. My heart for missions will only be moved when my heart is moved with worship. I must recapture a grand and awesome view of a glorious God, far greater than anything on this world, and then to begin to open my mouth to declare the glory of this God to the lost and dying world, that the kingdom of God and the will of God and the glory of God be on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so, Lord. How do we get there? 
How do we get to worship in the right place? What do we need to do? The answers are found again in God's word. Psalm 96, let's read the text. Psalm 96, verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Let's pause there. Bible student, what did you hear repeated three times? What do you see repeated three times at the beginning of this? Sing. And that's the first point. If worship fuels evangelism, that we need to grow in, in sharing Christ to a lost and dying world, if worship fuels that, then one of the ways that I can fan that into flame is this, point number one, sing it, sing it. One of the most repeated commands in all of scripture is to sing, to sing to the glory of God, to sing to God about God. There's just something about singing, isn't there? It engages the whole body. Singing from the heart with the mind, sometimes moving around. Now I literally am the worst singer I have ever met. <laughs> You'll notice I'll never sing during a sermon. Other guys will do that, I don't do that. But I love to sing. God calls the people to sing to him, to engage their minds, their bodies, their hearts in expression to him. Singing to God fuels missions. Can you believe that? The more that you sing, the more that you will want to share. Are you in a spiritual funk today? Then sing, sing it. Well, you might say, okay, well, hold on a second. Now that sing just means to live a life of joy and delight, and I can sing in my heart. No. That's not what the text says at all. That's not what's being said. God says, you need to sing. Like, with your voice, to a tune. And guess what? Guess what? Here's the good news. He doesn't care if you have a bad voice. God is surrounded all day long, in eternity, with angels who make us all sound like screeching cats. God doesn't care about your voice. He doesn't care about your vocal stylings. He doesn't care if your pitch is off. He doesn't care about your octave range. He just wants you to sing it. Just sing it with the broken voice you got. Just sing it. Listen, he, he doesn't care about how you sing it, but he does care about the content of what you sing. Look again at verses one through six. Verse one, sing to the Lord a new song. That's new words expressing old truths. New words because God is always working. There right there is the biblical foundation for new songs here at Hope Bible Church. New songs, same old truths. Hey, we love the old songs, we sing them too, but we're looking for new songs. How special is it, how special is it when you love someone to be telling them the same thing over and over and over again? Imagine if when I was first married, I went to the, to the, to the, to the card store and picked up 45 anniversary cards for Catherine. And I wrote, pre-wrote them in, because I'm thinking ahead. I wrote ahead and said, 
In every single one of them, my beloved, you are my treasure. Yours, Craig. <laughs> and every year, January 23rd, I walk up to Catherine and go, hey, honey. <laughs> same card, same cover, same words. Is that special? It's not special. Every year, I express the same truth and the same heart that I have, the growing heart I even have, with different words that I bring to her. Sing it, he says. That's the content, a new song. But look also, we're also to sing verse two of his salvation. Sing of the glory of God in the work of Jesus Christ. The content of our songs is to be the salvation of God. To personally declare what God has done in your life. To personalize the words. Yes, God, you've done that in my life too. That this Jesus has saved me. This Jesus has ransomed me. This Jesus has died in my place. This Jesus loves me so much. Joe Thorne, he's a pastor, he said this. People sing about the things that capture their hearts and the things that give them joy. People sing of heroes, victory, longing, and hope. People even sing as a way to express their sorrow. And now this quote, he says this. Does anyone have any more reasons to sing than you? As a sinner who's been forgiven, a slave who's been freed, a blind man who has received sight, a spiritual cripple who has been healed, all by the gospel, you have real reasons to be known as a person of song. Sing to the glory of God because of the person of Jesus Christ. Sing it. There's more content. Look at verse four. We're called to express the greatness of our God. Great is the Lord. Calling and crying out to his splendor, his majesty, his beauty, his power. Sing to the truth that this world is filled with nothing and nobody gods. But that there is one God who is greater. There is one God who has made the heavens and the earth. We worship that God. We worship the God. Sing it. And what happens when we sing? What happens when we sing? We gear our hearts to the place of truth. You ever wonder why we start our worship services with song? Not to entertain you. Not to give you some snappy tunes. Not to give you some, some amazing big vocal moments or a guitar solo. Not to give you something you can skip before the preaching starts. To give you an opportunity to have your hearts respond to the gospel, to draw your hearts to the realities of the truths that are in God's word about the greatness of our God. Okay, now watch this though. God calls them to sing, and look what happens when they sing. Look at verse three. He then says, he then calls us to declare his glory among the nations. Listen, listen. What's being said here is this. When you and I are singing it, we are seeing him more clearly. And when we see him more clearly, we worship him more fervently. And when we worship him more fervently, we declare him more urgently. It's this chain that draws us to declare the glory of God. And why urgently? Verse five, for, the God, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. We declare him because all the other ways are worthless. There are no other gods. 
Those gods are nobodies. My God, though, proves his worth by his work. You must hear of my God. You must hear of my Savior, Jesus Christ. You must hear of the one who made the heavens and the earth. And with hearts filled with worship, we declare him to the world around us. And all of this begins by singing it. You want to grow in missions? You want to grow in a desire to share Christ with your friends and your families? You start by singing it. And God loves new songs. God loves songs that tell of his salvation. God loves songs that tell of his greatness. New songs of his salvation and his greatness. Awesome. Awesome. Point number one was sing it. Let's move on. Worship fuels mission. Worship to God fuels mission to others. The more we sing, the more we declare. Here's point number two. It's this. Bring it. Bring it. More fuel for worship, which leads to more declaring of his grace to the world. Again, worship fueling missions. Look at verse seven. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Okay, students of the Bible, what word did you see three times there? Ascribe. Ascribe, right. Okay, I looked it up because that's what you pay me for. I looked it up. Ascribe is not a word that I normally use. I don't know, maybe that's a word you use. Get this. You want to know what ascribe means in that? The meaning behind ascribe is this. Give. Come on. Bring it. Bring it to the Lord, O families of the earth. Bring it to the Lord, glory and strength. Bring it to the Lord, the glory do his name. Bring an offering and bring it into his court. When I read that and understood that, it reminded me of my friend, Pastor Ray in Ottawa. I don't know if you've ever prayed with Pastor Ray. If you're praying for Pastor Ray, Pastor Ray will bow his head and he'll say, yeah, come on. He'll say, bring it. Come on now. What's he doing? He's ascribing worth. Ascribing is bringing back to God what he has already declared about himself. You have received the truth from God's word. You have examined the truth you have believed the truth, and then you've walked back to God and said, yep, that's exactly who you are. You are who you say you are. This is worship with my mind and heart and voice that speaks to the greatness of who God is. Which, by the way, is one thing in this life that you cannot overdo it in. You can overdo it in everything else in this life, but you cannot overdo it when it comes to declaring the glory of God. You're never going to risk that. And that's the content of his ascribing, his bringing it to God. It's the greatness of his God. It's the greatness of our God. Look again at verse 7. Look at the content that he's bringing to him. The glory and strength we read. In verse 8, we read the glory to his name. Let's take strength first. We're bringing back to God the understanding that, God, you are omnipotent. God, you can do anything at any time with anyone in any place. 
wherever you want. God, nothing stops you. Nothing will stop you, Lord, when you want to move. You are the God who created the heavens and the earth with a word from your mouth. You are the God who now holds it together by the will of your own heart. You are the God that we cannot even begin to understand. We can't even begin to understand the power of our God. And what's more, verse 7 and 8 testify to his glory. He's not only inconceivably strong, he's also inconceivably glorious. That word speaks of his majesty. It speaks of his radiance. And we ascribe it to him. That's who you are, Lord. This is who you are. We bring it. Look at verse 9, more content. The splendor of his holiness, the text says. That literally means the magnificence of his moral purity. He is pure. He is spotless. He is without sin or blemish of any kind. There are no evil motives with our God. Our God will not lie. He will not cheat. He will not steal. He will not bear grudges. He will not cease to be kind. He will not cease to be patient. He will never lose his temper. He will never go off on his kids. There is no sin in our God. He is absolutely pure. And we ascribe it to him. This is who you are, God. This is who you are. We bring it to him. Look at verse 10. The Lord reigns. This is the awesome, ultimate reign and rulership of our God. He is unlimited in his power, unlimited in his rulership. We ascribe this to God. We declare, God, you are the one who rules over everything. There are no accidents. You do everything in your perfect timing. Everyone responds to you and your perfect authority. There are no other rulers. All authorities belong to you, God. All kings answer to you, God. All presidents answer to you, God. All prime ministers answer to you, God. There would be no authority at all, except you had give, unless you had given it to them. They can sit on a chair in Ottawa, but you reign in a throne room in heaven, and we ascribe it to him. This is who you are, God. And this is what we're left with, this picture. A God who is all-powerful, who is all-glorious, who is pure, who is like nothing and like no one else, and a God who rules over everything. Okay, but now notice that God calls us to bring it to him, and then what happens? Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's worship again, fueling missions again. So listen, this is what we're called to bring, but what if we don't bring this? What if our view of God is skewed somehow? Maybe the circumstances of this world, maybe lack of time in God's word, maybe just a a failure to recognize something about God and his glory. What happens? I'll tell you what happens. All of a sudden, God is not all-powerful. He's just kind of semi-powerful. He's done some stuff in my life. He's semi-glorious, semi-pure, He's a little bit like some things. He's as excellent as something else in this life. Something else has my attention more than the excellent moral purity of my God. Or or maybe he doesn't rule over everything. Maybe there are circumstances that are way beyond his control and way beyond his power. And this particular circumstance that I'm dealing with right now, nothing and, and nobody can fix. That's misreading who God is. And then you begin to ascribe that back to God? What does that look like? See, the world and its concerns begin to creep in. 
fear and anxiety begins to creep in. Despair and trouble begins to creep in. And like putting on dirty glasses, now I see God as a weak God who can't do anything. Would I want to declare a God like that to the world? Or maybe something else catches my eye. I'm a little distracted. I'm enthralled by the television, enthralled by sports or purchases. They become more glorious to me. And now I ascribe a God who is less important than, say, the Toronto Raptors, or my garden, or whatever. Am I going to ascribe a God? Am I going to declare a God like that to the watching world? No. But when we begin to think rightly about who God is, as he has revealed himself, and we begin to bring that back to God, the more we bring it back to God, the more we understand who God is, the more mission begins to be fueled within our hearts. And guaranteed, the more we will declare. That's worship fueling missions again. It begins with singing it. It moves next to bringing it. Here's point three in the outline. Ring it. Okay, that's right. The outline is sing it, bring it, ring it. <laughs> I'm having a little fun with the outline and a little fun with you tonight. Let me, let me explain this. this is, here's verses 11 through 13 now. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. It's almost like you can hear a roar now, can't you? <laughs> and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the field sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let me explain that last point of ringing it. Worship, again, as I've told you before several times, worship is the thing that fuels missions in my life. My heart for the lost will only be moved when my heart is moved with worship for who God really is. And we fuel our worship to God by singing to the Lord. We fuel our worship by ascribing worth to the Lord. And now finally, by rejoicing in the coming of the Lord. That's what I mean by ringing it. Ring, 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 ring. Ask the Lord. He's coming. Ding dong. The Lord. He's coming. The text of the last section, you can read, we understand this right away, is looking into the future. All the words line up to give us a scene of the days ahead. We know it's the days ahead, right? That makes sense. Because when we read in verse 11 of the earth rejoicing, when we read in verse 11 of the, the sea roaring, when we read in verse 12 of the fields exalting and the trees of the forest singing for joy, we know that's not the reality today. We're seeing a very different world today. The world that we have and we're facing right now, the world that we live in right now, is not a world that's rejoicing. It's a world that's groaning. Paul even said this in, in Romans chapter 8. He said, like, a, like someone who's in childbirth, groaning in those pains, the whole creation is groaning like this. It's longing to be freed from its corruption and the effects of sin upon it. Creation isn't cheering right now. Creation is groaning right now. So, okay, so if it's groaning right now, then why is it cheering in the future? 
Psalm 96 says it's in the future. Why is it in the future? Look at verse 13. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Verse 13. Before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. What is moving creation to cheer? The coming of the Lord. Ring, ring. And this causes joy in creation. And it causes joy in the psalmist. And it should cause joy in us as believers in Jesus Christ in anticipation of this great day. Make no mistake, the message of this psalm ends with the triumphant hope that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Make no mistake, the message of this entire book ends with the phrase, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The great hope of the believer in Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is coming. Ring, ring, man. He's coming. But did you notice? The joy is nuanced, isn't it? He's not just coming. He's doing something when he comes. He will judge the world and righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There's joy in his coming, even despite the fact, verse 13, that he's coming to judge. You get that? Joy because of judgment. Joy because Jesus is coming. The Lord is coming. And he's going to judge. So, so why joy? Why joy at judgment? Two reasons, really, for joy and judgment. The first is when the righteous judge comes, all of the wrongs will be judged. All of the wrongs will be made right. All of the wrongs that you have experienced in this life with the people in this life will be judged. All of the murders judged. All of the rapes judged. All of the violence judged. All of the innocent ones killed judged. All of the little ones killed, judged. Revelation 6, the martyrs speak and they say, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer that comes back, the next verse is, not long, just a little bit more. There's joy in the judgment. Because God is coming and he is going to make all the wrongs right. But there's more joy in the judgment. There's a second reason to be joyful at the coming judgment of the Lord. Do you know what that is? It's the greater joy. It's the greatest joy of all. There is joy at the coming and the thought of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of judgment because, listen, because I will not be judged. 
because of my trust in Jesus Christ, I will not face the condemnation. There is nothing that will separate me from him and his love. I have been saved through Jesus Christ. And listen, it's not as though I'm innocent. I have wronged him greatly. I continue to wrong him greatly in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, in my deeds. I literally have never met someone more sinful than me because I know my heart. But I will not be judged because of faith in Jesus Christ. I will not be judged. I have given my life to him and the life I live now. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. There's joy in the judgment because the wrongs will be made right and because I will not stand in the judgment. And that's why the psalmist rejoices also. But what about those who have not heard? What about those who do not know? What about those who have not believed? Revelation 1, the beginning of the book, speaks of the coming of God, speaks of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and says this in verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Wail. That's cry with great grief. At the appearing of the Lord, oh no, what have I done? Oh no, it's true. Oh no, there is a God. Oh no, there's Jesus. Oh no, I've lived my life for myself. Oh no, what have I done? Oh no, what have I done? And they wail. And listen, this is the last piece. This is the last piece that the psalmist places in. As we understand the nearness of the coming of the Lord, loved ones, this moves us to missions. The day is drawing near. The time is ticking down. The hour is coming. The time is getting short. Shorter still. One day closer every day. One day closer every day. Let me pull up this last slide. Two hundred and eleven thousand. Two hundred and five thousand. One hundred and ten thousand. Five hundred and seventy nine thousand. 
830,000. 2,930,000. That's almost 5 million people. That's 5 million souls. We can fit 1,100 in this room. Five million. How many of them know him? Five million. How many of them have heard? How many of those do you run in during the week? The time is short. The treasure is too glorious. The cost of doing nothing is too tragic. Isn't it time? Isn't it time? Isn't it time, church? Can we be afford? Can we afford to be distracted with the world? Can we be affording to living for self? Thinking more about how we'll get to our cars and not get wet? Just stay and socialize. The time is short. The treasure is too great. The cost of doing nothing is too tragic. Isn't it time? If you're like me, and there's areas to grow, it's very easy to preach the gospel at church, very hard to preach the gospel to neighbors, very hard to preach the gospel to the people in my life that don't know him. If you're like me, and you need to move from that place, and feeling the weight of God's word to move from that place, then you need to see what Psalm 96 unpacks for us tonight, which is this, that a heart for missions can only be moved when there is a heart stirred in worship to God. We worship our way into missions. We sing it, we bring it, we ring it because the day is drawing near. Understand this, this is a worship issue. Either Jesus is the greatest treasure or he's not. Either Jesus is worthy to be sung to, or he's not. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not. Either Jesus is coming soon, or he's not. We worshiped our way away from this urgency. God, please draw hearts to worship our way back to smelling how near we are. Let me pray for us, church. Lord, it is right that your people feel weight tonight. It is right that we carry this. It is right that we see the ways that we've been living for the things of this world and not living for the kingdom of God. It is right that we see how 
ashamed at times we have been of the message of Jesus Christ. It is right that we see this. We've taken the good gift of salvation. Thanked you for it so many times, God. But are now feeling the weight. It's right. But what is not right is for us to feel the condemnation of it. The conviction is good. The condemnation is not from you. God, would you be stirring our hearts, please, towards obedience to you in this? Maybe it will take a crisis. Maybe it will take a difficulty. Or maybe it will come to us right now as we sit. That we would understand the things of this world that fade and fall and rust are not the things to be living for. But the kingdom of God is something to be living for. God, would you take this conviction now and bring us to a place of drawing forth greater worship to you, of greater love for you, of greater desire to speak the name, to declare the worth and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Maybe it's the neighbor that someone is thinking of right now. Maybe it's the spouse that someone is thinking of right now. Maybe it's the coworker. It will not do, Lord. It will not do for us to ignore the lost around us. Give us hearts, Lord, please. As you give us hearts to love you more, God, would you give us hearts to love them more? Would you give us hearts to share Jesus Christ more? Either he's worthy of it or he's not. And he is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. It all begins and ends with Jesus Christ. God, would you draw hearts, a greater affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and his great work for us, his love for us, his death for us, his sacrifice for us, his present work now for us, the future when we will see him face to face. God, would you draw such a love for Jesus from our hearts that we would see him more clearly, that we would worship him more fervently, and that we would share more urgently that our worship to you would truly fuel missions.